0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. the 6th of March 2018. I'm Simon Copeland and welcome to Queers. Each episode we talk our way through questions on a theme and this week we bring you an interview with Senator Janet Rice. Janet Rice is the Green Senator for Victoria, first elected in 2013 and then re-elected in 2016. She is the Green Spokesperson for LGBTIQ Affairs as well as the Spokesperson for Women, Transport and Infrastructure, Agriculture and Rural Affairs and Forests. We recorded this interview at the Better Together conference in January this year and spoke about the impact of the Postal Survey on Marriage Equality, what's next for LGBTIQ Australia now that marriage equality has passed, and the state of Australian politics in general. Okay, we hope you enjoy the interview. So today I'm really excited to be talking with the Green Senator Janet Rice. A climate scientist by training, Janet began her working life campaigning to protect forests. She was part of the 1983 Franklin River Blockade and a leader in the campaign that resulted in the creation of the Irinunda, Irinundra. Irinundra. Irinundra National Park in East Gippsland. She was also a founding member of the, of the Victorian Greens. Now Janet is the Green Spokesperson on LGBTIQ issues, women, agriculture and rural affairs, forest and transport and infrastructure. That's everything? Yes, that's it. Uh, she was a leading advocate on the issue of marriage equality and lives in Footscray with her partner Penny and your two adult sons, if I'm Except correct.
1: Both of them have now fled the nest. Ah, they've yes, now I fled the nest. <laughs> um, <laughs> Older son John left for Scotland three days ago. Oh, really?
0: Yes. I I, used, I lived in Scotland for about ten months okay. um, a couple of years ago. Whereabouts in Scotland? In Edinburgh. Oh, it's a lovely yes. city. My partner is there right now. He's from oh, Scotland. okay. Um, um, John has
1: just arrived. uh,
0: He'll love it. He'll love it. It's a beautiful place. Um, Well, Janet, thanks for agreeing to appear on Queers.
1: I'm delighted to be here, Simon.
0: Um, And how are you today?
1: I'm pretty good. Yes. Day Um, two of the Better Together conference. Still early on a Saturday morning.
0: Yeah, yeah. So for folks, we're recording at the Better Together conference today. This will probably come out after our live recording that we that Ben and I did yesterday. Um, So I mean, if we get some, we might get someone trying to enter a door here or there. Um, So if that happens, I'm sorry to our listeners. Um, get the
1: feel of being here at the conference. Yeah, exactly.
0: But we've, we've found a quiet space to do this, so hopefully this should work out all right. Um, let's start, Janet. You have a background primarily in environmental issues, um, but more, re- more recently have become a leading voice on LGBTIQ or queer issues. I'm wondering how you see the connections between the two. Is there an inherent link for you between your environmentalism and your um, work on social justice issues?
1: Look, there is, and that's one of the reasons why you know I've been so committed to the Greens over so many years, because you can work on the whole sort of interconnected suite of issues together. And if you think of the Greens' platform of ecological sustainability, social justice, um... Um, particip- democracy and peace and non-violence. You've got to really, in order to be creating a sort of fair and more sustainable world, you've got to be looking at all of them together. And for me, it's sort, of, um, sort of driven by this desire to be sort of creating a better world in all of its, you know, guises. And that means sort of respect for um, other species on the planet as well as respect for the human rights for the humans that are on this planet. And so people actually being able to live their lives and thrive and be healthy means that they can be in a space where they are also more respectful of and in much more in tune with the the natural environment and so for me you know the rights of human rights and seeing lgbti rights as human rights sort of fits fits into that of you know really it's it's respect for people's rights and and fits into that overall respect for the rights of of other species and all of the other amazing um, places that we that we have on this planet.
0: Yeah. So you said respect there a few times. So that's a really core cool part of the sort of philosophy that you sort of aim to bring to your work.
1: Yes. Yeah. And yeah, very very much so. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. And so I'm wondering, you know, I, for for listeners, I've been involved in the Greens for quite a while, or had been involved, but not so much anymore. Um, and one of the things that we often that I often heard was that. Focusing on social justice issues sort of was was a way to detract from the core focus of the party, which is a focus on the environment, and that it had the potential to lose voters who might be interested in the environment but weren't so concerned about social justice issues. What do you say to someone oh, look, I'd like say that? I'd
1: you, say you can't separate the two of them, and that you've got to be sort of um, to be coherent as a party. You've got to be pursuing. Social justice issues and environmental issues side by side, and it's you know, essentially—I don't see that you can differentiate between the two. And I think the difference with the Greens and other parties is that we add on that ecological ecological sustainability. We add on the fact that we don't live in this vacuum and in a um, world you know, away from the environment. That we are part of the environment, but. You can't, we, you know, we can't have a healthy environment if we have got people whose rights are being trashed all over the place. If you've got people living in poverty um, and if you've got people who are really struggling to survive and living really unhappy lives, they are going to be in no place whatsoever to be able to focus anything on anything other than their own personal well-being rather than seeing themselves as being part of you know, an interconnected environment and seeing themselves as having a role in in looking after and being a steward of that environment, so yeah, I, I, I for me, I've you know that dichotomy is such a false dichotomy to say that you can just be looking at one or the other
0: and i guess for me another part of that is in, in this is a crude way of saying it but what's the point of having a healthy environment if everybody is living terrible lives you know it, it, obviously there is there's there's, there's value in nature and an intrinsic value in nature and an intrinsic value in in other species life but if we sort of create a, a an economic or democratic system that protects the environment, but makes sure that mm, everybody people has are living, <laughs> living yeah, in yeah, poverty in, or with no rights, then then that doesn't seem like a very good no, world to me. No, and it's
1: not going to be stable essentially because people, you know, if you I meant it's You think of it sort of more in a sort of developing world context it's sort of the easy you know the, the starkness of you 've got people who are struggling and you 're telling them well you can 't you know, 've got to look after this this pristine bit of the environment they 're not going to do it you know because it 's going to be cheaper and easier for them to be you know, polluting that or un, unsustainable you know, extraction of resources and and it's you know, it 's just not going to work.
0: So just a final question on this theme. I'm wondering, I'm not sure quite how to frame this, but how you see the work that the Greens do connecting those two together and the sort of solutions that we need that connect those two together. How can we do a better work in this kind of space, making the environment an issue, and then also in environmental spaces making Mm. social justice an issue and linking those two together?
1: I think it's... It's something that we've got to work more on. In fact, just you know, tiny thing at this conference, you know, we've got lots of plastic water bottles for the, the water supply. And I know that why, why they did that—they were trying to cut costs. We haven't got any catering here at the town hall, so it's the easy way to provide water. But it's those small things and actually just getting an awareness, much a greater awareness of, hey, there are other ways you can, you can do this. I mean, even just telling the conference um, attendees that Look, there's going to be no catering, bring your own water bottle, bring your own keep cup so that you can go out and get a, a cup of coffee, you know, at, the, at a local cafe. Um, so it is, I mean, it's one of the things that I think as Greens that we have got a role, because we are, you know, as an organisation, quite uniquely placed We're focusing on all of those issues together, so I think we've got a perspective that we can bring um, to other organisations that we work with, and just raise awareness. I'm sure, you know, if we'd if we'd been, say, involved in this, if somebody with that perspective had been involved in this conference organising, that we wouldn't have plastic water bottles here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I was really happy during the marriage equality campaign was I saw groups such as the AYCC and Greenpeace and 350 sending out emails encouraging people to vote for the marriage equality campaign, it was a sort of a cross Across issue, you know, groups that would normally not work on a, on a queer issue, sort of getting involved in that, seeing that as an important moment. Is there ways that we can build those sorts of collaborations, you know, I think more we and longer just, term? Yeah,
1: keep on working on it and, and encouraging organisations to be you know, working collaboratively, which again is a, you know a theme of this conference. So we're better together. And in terms of the progressive movement, those of us that are concerned about the broad range of both human rights and environmental rights, and the rights of other species, the more that we can work together as a united front, the better.
0: Um, So, moving on from this, I mean, 2017 was a pretty important year in sort of queer, LGBTIQ politics in Australia. (laughs) Just, you know, just I want to have a bit of a personal reflection from you. you. You know, you were central in the whole debate throughout you know, particularly the latter half of the year. Um, how did you, it feel for you to be part of that process and maybe you know, in particular I want to get a sense of how you felt on the day that the survey results were released, mm. um, which is quite a big day for many many people in, in Australia.
1: Mm. I mean there are a couple of really significant elements. I mean, one was the, you know, the fact that we have achieved such a massive outcome, that in itself you know, makes it huge and major. The second thing for me was that, you know, I've been in the Senate for three and a half years during the time of the Abbott Turnbull governments, and so parliamentary wins are so few and far between. You really, you know, question the value of being there. as You're sort of fighting the good fight and getting absolutely nowhere and having the sort of things that I believe in and I value being trashed every day and hearing the most outrageous sort of... horrible stuff from the the government benches about issues, whether it's women's rights, LGBTI rights, um, environment, uh, climate, all of that. And so to actually have a huge win out of this parliament was a huge thing for me personally as a senator because I just hadn't experienced that in my three and a half years in the Senate. Um, the other really significant part of of the whole process for me that was also um, quite striking compared with other parliamentary processes was the fact that we were working across party lines, so working collaboratively with um, LGBTI supporters, you know, from Liberal, Labor, Independence, Greens, that we were all working together. We all had our eye on, you know, very much what we were aiming to do, we, there was a very strong support for let's put aside our sort of party differences. We're going to work together and developing some trusting relationships in in doing that, and that you know happened through the we've we've had the Parliamentary Friends of LGBTIQ Australians, which have laid the groundwork for having some sort of good relationships with sort of LGBTI, particularly the um, lesbian, gay, bisexual members of the Parliament working together. Um, But then through the Senate inquiry that we agreed into what the legislation should look like that would address the issue of of religious exemptions as well as achieving marriage equality. And we, we agreed through that process that if we could end up with a consensus report, that was going to be the most powerful thing. And so because we were then working for consensus... That, again, you know, working for a consensus report in the Parliament is is almost unheard of, which, you know, in my politics, of course, being involved with the Greens, we work collaboratively and sort of aim for consensus all the time within the party, but you sort of feel you've got to put that aside when you come into the Parliament and you're just there in this really oppositional, adversarial space. So that was a striking difference, to be working on that Senate inquiry and aiming for a consensus report.
0: I'm wondering what you think about the... I know the Greens obviously opposed the, the public vote or the plebiscite... Mm. Or postal survey throughout the process. On reflection, what, what are your thoughts about the role that that big vote for the yes had in making sure that that legislation did pass mm. and and pass without any amendments yeah. um, any of the conservative amendments coming through do you think if it hadn't gone through that process there would have been more likely that there would, there would have been some of those conservative amendments getting up in the parliament
1: i don't think the conservative amendments would have got up but there would have been many more people that would have voted for them and the vote would have been closer there was no doubt that because of the survey there were members of the the liberal and national parties who felt that they they were given the um, ability to um, not vote for those those conservative amendments that if you hadn 't had the survey, they might have felt they had to but in my view about the surveys, we absolutely shouldn 't have had to have gone through it. It was harmful, it was damaging there was you know this ongoing harm just unleashings of the homophobia and transphobia that it did. So, and, you know, we we knew all the time that we had the numbers in the Parliament, that there were, you know, if, if the members of the government, once they were given the ability to have a, a conscience vote, there was support for getting legislation through the Parliament. So it would have happened without the survey. And so, you know, and Parliament had to vote for it anyway, so we didn't need to have it. It was, you know, harmful and, and cost such a huge amount of money. But, you know, there were some silver linings of having had that, and that was, one, the level of, you know, overwhelming support and sort of no chance of those amendments getting up. Um, and the fact that it's you know, absolutely unequivocally sort of put to bed any issue of, oh, there's a, you know, silent majority of people who really, you know, were in favour of traditional marriage. No, there was not. Yeah. <laughs> it was absolutely crystal clear yep. that the majority of Australians sort of, you know, supported the rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex and queer Australians.
0: I want to interrogate the survey a little bit more, um, thinking about how it worked and the the opposition to it. I'll start off with some thoughts about um, the campaign itself. Do you have thoughts about, you know, what the campaign did well during the survey process and also things that we could learn as a community from the campaign, some of the issues that may have arisen during that process, you know, from your own perspective?
1: Look, I think... It was the right decision to sort of focus very much on the positive and not get dragged into the, the negative campaigning. So sort of focusing on... You know, it's, it's it's about love um, and people being able to marry the person that they love. So... And I think given the resources, it was also the right decision. The other focus of the... the feature of the campaign was that there was a decision to focus on essentially getting out the vote, knowing that we had enough... Um support there in the community we just had to make sure that people voted. so that was um i think they were re- two really important features that resulted in the uh, you know, in in the vote being as high as it was. um it did mean that you know there were people in other parts of the country where there wasn't so much support um, that they didn't they didn't get focused on as much. And I think if you look then at the, where the no campaign succeeded the most, that was, you know, they focused in very different parts of the country and we could have, with more resources and sort of challenging their campaign, I think there were quite a lot of people that voted no that, that wouldn't have voted no.
0: Um, thinking about that engagement, I guess, that came... Through the process, and I think for me, one of the silver linings of the of the of the process was that it, it did create a requirement for sort of more engagement on the ground, at least over a short period of time. Mm. Um, but at the same time, that uh, it was obviously very difficult for people, um, you know, having to go through that process and and seeing seeing the results of that process. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I mean, one of the core philosophy, another core philosophy of the of the Greens is is grassroots democracy. Mm. Yet we saw a lot of sort of I guess negative discourse about. About having to engage in that sort of democratic process, or in a democratic process, in this sort of rights-based issue, if that makes mm. sense, mm. how do we how do we align those two things? About how do we engage with people on on rights-based issues, ones that are particularly so personal, uh, in a sort of grassroots democratic way? What you know, how do how do we do those sorts of processes?
1: I think you can have the engagement, but it doesn't have to end up you know with a vote at the end of it I mean because the problem with the vote is that it's just so polarizing that you're either for it or against it whereas actually having the debate and having the discussion um I think is you know an incredibly valuable thing to do so it's it's and you know, it's interesting sort of thinking on the where we're at this year now with sort of the Ruddock you know religious freedoms inquiry. Um, and which is, you know, all being framed in a very um, anti-progressive values way but we've got the opportunity, I think, to try and shape that into a discussion about human rights and to be putting those, you know, religious exemptions and religious privileges into a context of human rights and so if we could actually use that to have that discussion and to be having some more grassroots debates about human rights, I think that would be really positive. I mean, the, the, the problem with you know wasn't so much having the the campaign about about human rights um, and, and about the the rights of LGBTI people it was the fact that people then had had to vote on it and to feel that they had the ability and the right to vote on people's rights um, I had um, the really interesting experience of doing the the scrutineering or observing as it was called of for a day of the of the votes when they came in and in particular we had a a strong focus on looking at the the people that had voted informally or the, the ones that weren't you know straightforward yes or no and the striking thing from that experience for me was the number of people who you know either crossed both boxes or they didn't vote or they just you know wrote on their form and overwhelmingly it was i shouldn't be voting on the human rights of somebody else it's not my role to be making a decision on the human rights of somebody
0: else so thinking about this sort of grassroots, I mean, you, you've sort of um, said it was that the vote is the kind of the problem that sort of sets up this polarizing debate, and and we've, you and I previously have had conversations about consensus as a as a rule. Mm. And so, how can we, as a community in a broader sense, you know, in, in a green in the party of the Greens, where you have meetings, um, you know, you can you can use consensus based pro- processes, but how on a, on an issue such as a rights based issue? Sort of engage in a more consensus-based process rather than then negati- going straight to a, a vote, and mm. you know, and we end up with a vote in a parliament as well. You know, I think yes, that yeah. you know one of the critiques I've had about the idea of voting on rights is that we we kind of do that anyway through voting for parliamentarians who then vote on the vote on those rights anyway. So, what what are some alternative ways to sort of deal with these sorts of issues that have a more consensus focus or or, or about building up public support, you know, in that kind of way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's hearing giving platforms and creating spaces to hear people's stories and yeah that's that's a big thing to do that and i mean one of the the other challenge is to, is to be doing things that are actually engaging enough and salient enough for people to actually want to be engaged. I mean, one of the reasons why people were happy to have the conversation, of course, was that they knew that, OK, I'm going to vote on this, and this was a big issue that was going on in our society. So how you create that level of um, you know, interest in, in the issue, I'm not quite sure... But I think it's the sort of thing that we sh- absolutely should be, you know, working out how to do more of. Because if you're going to have participatory democracy, um, that's what we need to have. We need to have people having those conversations at a, at a grassroots level, um, you know, and yeah, create creating this, resourcing it for one thing, um, and then. D- taking the opportunities to give people the the opportunities to have those discussions to hear people's stories to really engage with an issue in a you know quite complex and nuanced way rather than i mean one of the problems was yes we're talking about having the grassroots campaign as part of this you know the the vote, but you know, most of it was actually conducted via you know media coverage of some, you know really hurtful and very simplistic um, um, attitude positions that were being put, particularly by the no campaign.
0: Mm. One of my critiques of the campaign, or not the campaign, but of the of the media coverage, is that it overplayed some of those you know, those flyers, you'd get a flyer that would come out to a few places in Melbourne and it would suddenly be national news. Um, is, that, is that something that you think that the media could have played a bit more, of a, been a bit more responsible in sort of not spreading that stuff as quickly or, or was it important to highlight those in, those instances throughout the campaign?
1: Look, it's a bit of a balance. I think it is important to highlight it, but it did tend to then frame the whole... Um, narrative and because the yes campaign was wanted to focus and knew that the best thing was to continue to focus on very much the positive that you know this is about love between two people uh, the media uh, and the, the was the no campaign that was sort of having the most you know the more sensational you know your your child is going to be um <laughs> yeah is yeah going going to end up sort of having to wear a dress to school all of that stuff um that's that was going to be the more sensational stuff. So I don't know, but I think it was important for people to know that 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 was the outrageous stuff that was being said. Um, it's you know, I mean that's that's part of the problem of having that that level of high-profile campaign is that it's inevitable that you cannot have. I mean, we had, you know, George Brandis and Malcolm Turnbull saying we're going to have a a respectful debate. It was going to be impossible to have a respectful debate um, given the the circumstances that were set up.
0: Uh, just uh, maybe one or two more questions on this whole thing This it's such an interesting I think for me it's such an interesting example of of, of, a, of a whole process that mm. was cr- created debate and I, I, I'm fascinated to talk about it um Obviously, we've noted there was a lot of homophobia and, and I think also particularly transphobia oh, that came out absolutely. through this absolutely. It was trans
1: people that ended up being thrown under the bus. Um, it, which I can process. imagine is
0: something that might have impacted your family in yes. particular. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, I mean, the, the amount of transphobic stuff that just came through my email inbox, that, you know, a lot of it, in fact, my staff didn't even let me see. And then there was the stuff that, you know, I saw, and there's no way that I was going to share that with Penny because mm. basically it was just saying that trans... Trans people, you know, don't exist to the work of the devil, all of that. And, I mean, it still continues to come through my, you know, Facebook posts. The, you know, people that really have just completely, um, yeah, they don't accept that that trans, um, that gender dysphoria is a real thing.
0: And so it seems clear to me that... I mean, I think that homophobia obviously continues throughout our society, and and that's mm-hmm. something that we saw through the postal survey. And but it seems clear to me that, and we saw we saw this in the US that transphobia is probably something going to be it's going to be maybe the new frontier, if you want to say, or the or the new way that the. the, the the, the new attack that conservatives are going, are going to use against LGBTQ people, they're going to target trans people in particular, I get that sense. Mm. What are ways that we can deal with that um, and ignore you know recognize that and deal with that coming going forward if, 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 that, if those attacks are, are to come?
1: I think it's uh, continuing the work of making the stories of trans people more evident. I mean, one of the changes if I you know, think back over the last 30 years, say when I was at school and I didn't know any, you know, I went to an all-girls school and I didn't know anybody that identified as being same sex attracted at my school. Mm. It just wasn't done. Every And basically for most people um, homosexuality was invisible. And so people who were gay and lesbian knew because they were in the closet, they didn't come out, it was a secret thing. People didn't think they knew any gay people. Now, Everyone knows somebody whether your brother, your neighbour, your, your, your uncle. You know, so people know that gay and lesbian and bisexual people are just normal people like them <coughs> and they and they accept them. And so when you have the sort of homophobia being cast at people, people say, No, you know, that's not what my sister's like. It's not what my you know, my friend I you know, Play soccer with is like they know them to be just a normal person like them who happens to sort of love someone of the same the same gender, but most people don't know a trans person, and so they can be really you know um, um, yeah. They 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 can be they, they can you can build up this image of a trans person that's that's completely inaccurate. And so I think telling the stories and that's, you know, one of the reasons why I just keep on telling the story of of um myself and Penny's relationship. We don't want to keep on telling that story, but just so people can see that yes, you know, here's a relationship um with a with the trans partner and we're just normal you know normal normal people. Yeah. Um and I think that's as more trans people than have that visibility other trans people then also have the confidence of coming out um, which again you know you think even 20 years ago when when Penny first told me about her gender dysphoria I thought you know it was like something that you read in the women's weekly it's not the sort of thing oh you know it doesn't happen to me and at that stage I think you know I knew of two trans people Mm-hmm. And you just look at the difference now sort of twenty years on of the profile of of trans people, and so once then people have have met a trans person and they know that oh yeah, they're just a normal person, I think that's going to be the main way that we we stop the the transphobias sort of really taking hold.
0: yeah it's interesting you brought up school at the start of that um because i you know when I was at school um you know ten fifteen years ago. You know, I was one of them, but when I knew some gay people. There were a few gay people. Mm. But I, I didn't know anybody who was trans or it was not something that was really well known. But my, my partner's a teacher and he... They, you know, he's in high school as well, and they have multiple students who are either trans or non-binary, or, or and so even the shift in that ten years is quite Absolutely. quite stark.
1: And I look, you know, my my kids, they're now in their early twenties, and when they were at school, yes, it was just not only did they have this whole suite of friends who were, you know, gay and lesbian lesbian friends, and they were completely out at the age of fourteen or fifteen, but yes, all of the non-binary um, kids that they were at school with, and it's just such a, a massive change, and it is a big social change, and so it's not surprising that you know there's. Going Going to be um, a variation in how that change gets accepted by members of our, our community um, and that it's going to take some time. I mean, one of the other things in terms of just recognising what a huge change you have been through is, again, thinking back to when Penny and I were married, which was 1986. That was the same year that there was a survey done. It was the height of the um, HIV AIDS crisis and there was a survey done about homosexuality in Australia and two-thirds of Australians at that stage thought that homosexuality was immoral mm. you know and so yeah. that and that was when I was an adult you know yeah, it was yeah. when Penny and I were getting married yeah that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> the, and that's the
0: height of the um, you know the, the sort of gay murder spree and in, in, yes. in, in Sydney and, and, and Adelaide and parts of Melbourne as well mm. um so it's amazing to think that you know the progress in what 20 30 years that's right um what, what, one other question I wanted to ask is, you know, actually thinking about this, you know, how we deal with these sorts of social issues how do you see your role as a parliamentarian in doing this? And I know this is a big debate within the Greens about, you know, the role of social movements versus the role of parliament and how those two things interact. Mm. How do you see that role, you know, and how do you see your role as a parliamentarian in dealing and working with social movements and in creating social change? And I I want to ask this in particular because you said that, uh, you know, earlier on in our conversation, you said that, you know, you felt you sometimes feel a little sort of question of what's the (laughs) point because nothing is, nothing is being achieved. So how do you connect with social movements and how do you engage Mm. In that way.
1: And again, I think there's a bit of a uh, tendency to sort of create this dichotomy that you've either got sort of activism happening in the community or activism happening in the parliament. I see myself as an activist in the parliament Mm -hmm. and you use the legislative change when you can achieve it, where you've got political levers to achieve that change. But a lot of the work that I do in the parliament, and again, particularly influenced by the last three and a half years of Conservative government, so not much chance for legislative change, a lot of the work I do in the parliament is as a campaigner. It's, you know, it's using my platform as a senator to be out there, to be advocating, to be getting a profile, to have a focus on issues. And so it's absolutely working hand in hand with the you know, community-based movements. And we need both. You know, we need to have really strong community-based campaigns and we need to have people in our parliaments that share those values, who can be there and be the, the advocates for change in the parliament. And in fact, that was, you know, one of the, uh, really the driving force between you know, me getting involved with helping to, to found the Greens in Victoria because I had this background working in the community movements and doing as much as we, we could do there in really strong community campaigns on environmental issues but there just wasn't the representation in our parliaments to actually be able to reflect that in legisl- legislative change. You know, and It all depended then upon the politics of you know lobbying and, and marginal seat politics and you'd have Labor and Liberal listening when the politics worked out and they could see oh yeah there's a bit of support there so we'd better throw them you know throw them a bone um whereas and there wasn't the the strong support in the parliaments for the the that reflected the values of
0: the movements and do you think that that sort of you know the sort of what you're discussing is is a thing that the Greens continue to do to engage with that social movements. How important do you think it is for the party as a whole? Because um, and I'm thinking about this, the potential critiques that the Greens are sort of becoming more parliamentarian. Is there is there work that needs to be done to reconnect with social movements, or is that still continuing from your perspective? And I how think does it's that work? Sti-
1: I think it is still continuing. I mean, there's always the limitations of you know of time and what you can do with the resources available. But I think it's it's really important. One of the problems, of course, is that a lot of the social movements they are reluctant. To get in behind and to be working closely with us, because they feel that they don't want to be jeopardising their relationships with the, what they see as the parties of potential government or of government, and so they can be working with you behind the scenes, but will never actually come out and say, "Yeah, the Greens, you know, are representing our voice and um, in the in the parliament." So that's that's an ongoing
0: frustration. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um... So moving on a little bit, marriage equality passed in 2017. Um, We've had our first marriages. It was was an issue that sort of took up a lot of energy and space Mm. for, you know, 13 years for quite a long time and sucked up a lot of that media space in particular. I, I, I hate to sort of, you know create you know these boxes of, of issues that might be next but you know that's you know we're at this conference mm. which is sort of discussing the sort of next steps. What do you think are the next steps? I mean maybe even thinking about yourself uh, as the person who, who holds mm. the LGBTIQ portfolio. What are the sort of issues that you might be able to spend some more time putting your attention towards um, now that marriage equality mm. has passed?
1: Well there are, there are still bits of legislative change that are required but most of them are at state level rather than at federal level. The other real um, change that, was, that I thought we'd be working on too at a a federal level was for the rights of trans young people to not have to go to the family court to get hormones but that was fixed you know the the same week as marriage equality in fact there was the um, family court decision that said that that struck out that requirement. So intersex issues are a real one that I think I'm going to have a focus on in 2018 Mm -hmm. because the rights of intersex people are still lagging far behind the rights of and and Understanding and acknowledgement of the issues that intersex people face. And, you know, if we think that trans people haven't got a profile compared with lesbian, gay and bisexual people, intersex people is even less so. People just... Your average person doesn't understand, you know, what, who an intersex person is.
0: I think most people in the, in the LGBT... Yeah. Most people in this conference probably don't even know what intersex exactly. means. Exactly,
1: yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then there are the ongoing issues of just... Getting I mean, the, certainly the religious exemptions, I think, is going to be something that we're going to be be fighting and and making sure that we don't get you know, extra discrimination on the guise of religious freedoms. So working on that again is going to be a, an ongoing thing through through 2018. Um, and and then support for you know, LGBTI people across the board in all spheres of their life, from you know school settings and through to aged care settings, of really making sure that there is uh, that acceptance and that the barriers aren't there. A lot of it isn't actually legislative stuff that needs to happen, and certainly um, not legislative. Um, changes that need to happen at a federal level. So essentially my role is going to be continuing on the work as an advocate, working with our um, MPs in the state parliaments, but there are still changes to state discrimination laws that are required. We've got the ongoing issue, back to the trans, although we've got marriage equality, there's still um, the discrimination against trans people that may continue up to the next 12 months of people like my um, wife Penny not being able to change her gender on her birth certificate because we're married. Um, So that needs to change, the states need to change their laws in the next 12 months, but we're wanting that to happen as quickly as possible. And then there are other birth certificate laws as well because most states and territories also say that you can't change your gender um, unless you've had surgery and if you're over 18 and both of those are are big things that we think are totally inappropriate. Um,
0: And going... That's that's really interesting going back to the intersex question you said that you said you're sort of focusing on intersex rights do you have anything specific I mean is it looking at the unnecessary medical interventions is that a, is that a, going to be a core focus or something or anything yeah, else that's
1: that's certainly the the big one of unnecessary um, surgery on young intersex children and that you know, essentially they get uh, gets decided for them whether they are male or male or female and very much the sort of binary that you they will be either a, you know, a male or a female. And so working on on getting changes so that that no longer occurs unless it's absolutely medically necessary for them to have that surgical intervention then it's, it's support, the whole range of support and sort of ending discrimination against intersex people and which fits in with the recognition of non-binary and I think that's going to be another big thing as well and so that we're just at the beginning of, of recognising that um, of getting away from the, the binary and sort of that whole you know, gender diversity and, and non-binary and intersex because you know, if there is much more acceptance of that in the community... That's where you know the the determination that yes you know you have to fit into either a male or a female box and disappears, and much more acceptance of of people in their gender expression or their um, their, their intersex status, regardless of, of of what it is.
0: And just quickly on this uh, religious freedom, um, so there's been an inquiry that's going to be headed by Philip Ruddock, uh, or is being headed yes, by Philip Ruddock, right. um, to investigate into religious freedom. I mean. Do you have any thoughts about what we should expect from this inquiry, and the, and you know, do we have any sense of where it's going? Like we haven't we haven't really heard much about it, I don't think, since it was announced. Do we have any idea about where it's heading, what it might look like, and whether that's something that you know, queer people should be worried about and should be thinking look, about? Look,
1: I think, I mean, Ruddick himself has um, certainly has been chosen. To, he's got fairly conservative views on you know, on religious on on the issue of of religious privilege. There isn't an LGBTI person on the inquiry. Um, There are some others. I don't know the the details of all the other members. We've got the new um, head of the um, Human Rights Commission, um, Rosalind Croucher, in which, you know, we don't... I haven't got much of a sense of of what um, her role is going to be and, and what the position she's going to take. They're calling for submissions, so I think it's really important for people to put in submissions to say that... And the main thing, you know that I would like to see people emphasise is to say that, yes, you know, religious rights are important and there are you know, the right to hold a religion is something that we should respect and that our current anti-discrimination law doesn't actually respect that as well as it should. So there is a change that should happen in our anti-discrimination law to say that people's um, right to hold a religion should be respected. But then... In order to manifest that religion, that one person's religious freedom becomes another person's discrimination. And in order to weigh up whether that's appropriate or not, it needs to be looked at in the broad context of human rights law. And in fact, needs to be looked at in the whole context of a charter of human rights. And if we, as part of this debate, could um, actually get that more of a case and more of a push to say, look, Australia is the only Western democracy that doesn't have a charter of rights through a bill of rights, we would be so much a better country, and if we had one, um, I don't think we're going to get that outcome out of this inquiry, but it could actually kick-start the debate, and I think that would be the most productive thing that we could potentially get out of it.
0: And I take it that's going to be a focus of the Greens, because so you did announce, or sort of... Not, not really announced, it's always been a policy of the Greens, but sort of announced it would be a push quite yes, recently, didn't that's you? that's right.
1: So, and Nick McKim, who's our spokesperson on on legal issues, is, he and I will be working together on yeah, really sort of outlining this is what the Greens would like would like to see in terms of having a Charter of Rights for Australia.
0: That's something I'd like to interrogate more, but I think we're running out of time, so we might have to do that another time. Um, one last question for you. What are your plans going forward? Are you... I mean, we're we having an election either this year or next year. Are you intending to run again? I mm. we leaving you up for election I've, next time? And
1: That's right, yes. So after the double dissolution, I got the three-year term, so I've, you know, so much for six years of being a yeah. senator. So, you know, by the time I've served six years of the Senate, I would have... I will have um, had had three elections, that's right. So I'm up for election, which could be as early as August this year. And if there's an election before then, because of all the the citizenship section 44 stuff, it would have to be just a a House-only election, which would be an interesting thing. I actually don't think that that's going to be as, as things roll out. So, yes, so looking for an election come, you know, any time after August. I've been pre-selected again, so I'm certainly there, ready to continue to, you know, um, do what I can as a senator to be really, you know, making some progress on these these really important issues.
0: And, like, one, just to, to finish off on that, like, it, you know, we've got an election, so from August on. Mm. I mean, I know that's still at least, what, six, eight months, nine months away. Do you have any thoughts at this point in time about you know, what the election might actually be about, what's gonna be the focus of this election, and also, you know, do you have any ideas about, you know, where we might end up after this election? You know, what, what's, where do we wanna end? Where do we wanna oh, go? Oh look,
1: I really hope that we can chuck this current government out. <laughs> where do we, you know, my dream is that we're gonna end up with, um, you know, Greens in balance of power in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. Of course before then we uh, are likely to have also had a by-election in the seat of batman which is the best seat in the country to add to adam Banted in Melbourne to being elected so having a by-election in batman which alex patale has been the candidate there for the um, last few elections she is pre-selected to stand we very at the end of that by-election we very easily could end up with two greens in the house of reps We've got um, potential. Um, we came really close in the seat of Melbourne Ports as well. And again, Steph Hodgins May, who was our candidate last time, has been pre-selected. That's Michael Danby's seat, who's been in the news over the last week for his um, rotting of, of parliamentary expenses. Um, yep, Steph came really close last time. So you know, best it would be a wonderful outcome if you know after the next election we had two or three Greens in the House of Reps and. I think it's likely to be a close election. So that very much, very possibly could put us um, in a situation with the balance of power in a, and um, supporting a Labor government and able to sort of push them to some real progress on, you know, not just on um, human um, human rights stuff, but um, environment, and particularly climate is the one that I really want to see. We just have to make some progress on.
0: Yeah, and just for, for our listeners... Um the, the seat of Batman might have a by-election because David Feeney, who's the current MP, might be, might be in citizenship That's trouble. right. He's, he,
1: he will, he's been... Re- no, he hasn't yet. Yes, he has been referred to the High Court, and the, so the High Court will be making a decision um, February. It's uh, likely to happen, so the Batman by-election yeah, March... Possibly April is, is a likely thing. Yep. Um, yes, he seemed to forget to renounce his British citizenship.
0: As, no. he, as he forgot his $2.3 million That's right. House. We wonder whether
1: his citizenship papers might be sort of lost somewhere under the floorboards of his $2.3 million investment property. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, well, um, Janet, thank you very much for agreeing um, to um, be interviewed for the podcast. Um, it's been really lovely to chat with you. Thank you, Simon. Simon here again. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a regular episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via email at queerspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Queers Podcast, or follow our personal social media pages. Ben is on Twitter at Ben C. riley, while I am on Twitter at Simon Copland, and on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can check out our website, queerspodcast.com, where you can find all our old episodes. And please go and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please make sure you leave a review and rating so other people can find us. If you like the show, also tell a friend, as word of the mouth is the best way for people to hear about us. Finally, thanks as always to Earbuds, our podcast network partner. Please go and check out some of the other amazing shows on the Earbuds network. Thanks as always for listening and see you in a couple of weeks.
1: earbuds melbourne's podcast network earbudsnetwork.com